Hey, and welcome to episode five of the Beer and Bible podcast. I'm Paul. I'm Dan. And we are going to discuss Bible while drinking beer today. Yep. This is episode five, and we are going to be discussing the cleansing of the temple. Which is significant with Holy Week, um, just coming upon us rather quickly. Yeah, it starts on uh, Sunday. Palm Sunday. Yeah. You're excited? I am. I always enjoy this time of the liturgical calendar. I wonder how many of our listeners follow a liturgical calendar. I don't know. I, I do. I, I was never brought up to. You weren't? I wasn't brought up to it. This was not part of our discussion beforehand. But, no. Well, so, we weren't going to talk about this. But it's part of the yeah, liturgical calendar. Um, Palm Sunday kicks that off, Holy Week. Mm-hmm. And then you have Monday, Thursday, Good Friday. Yep. And some churches have the waiting where they actually come to church and there's sit in church and kind of observe like a funeral and um there's some very strict catholics that do that where they have like the waiting where it's kind of like you go and you mourn the actual loss i never really experienced good friday until a few years ago i think i read a peter rollins book or something (laughs) yeah you were just throwing in with all the heretics now yeah Yeah. Yeah, the the title good friday is always dumb because it rubbed you the wrong way yeah. Yeah. Well, it didn't before when it was just a day off of school. It was a Good Friday or a day off of work. And Belding this year gets Good Friday off. Now it seems like seems like the day that we should all question our faith. But that's for another podcast. Yeah. Because that's not what we're talking about today. No, but well, I mean that's like the whole "My God, My God, Why Have You Forsaken Me?" comment from Jesus on the cross. So yeah. I thought, Maybe we can do that for our next podcast. Or they can come to Beers and Bible. Yeah. This coming Wednesday at the horse's mouth, 8.15. Yeah. We might for tackle our, that. For our local friends, we, uh, we're having an event. And by local, we mean Belding, Michigan. We have like <laughs> listeners in Palo Alto, California. We also have listeners in Bolivia. Bolivia, South America. Hi, Mom. Somebody listened from Canada. Canadians. Wow. Yeah. So, um, England. That's your fault. That's my fault. After a couple more drinks, they'll catch the accent. But we're two and a half minutes in, and we haven't touched what we're discussing today. Um, So Dan's going to start off with us reading out the scriptures. Yeah, this is uh, Luke chapter 19. And what we want to do is set the stage for Jesus riding into Jerusalem um, for what would be his final week. um, Because this is pretty much the beginning of the end. For Jesus, they decide that they're going to conspire against him and kill him because of these actions and several others. But this is picking up in Luke chapter 19, verses 28. And when he had said all these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent out two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it, and as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawn near, 
Already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So he's riding a donkey. He's not riding some nice white stallion. No. He's like, Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) He was compensating for something. Yeah. Um, I love how much of an intentional focus it puts on the cult in this passage because it's supposed to cue us into something. Well, because he tells them to go and get the cult. They show up to get the cult. And then there's a conversation between the owner of the cult and them. And they say, no, he needs a cult. Yeah. Like, what's that setup all about? The, the guy that owns the cult's like, oh, yeah, fine. You know, if the Lord needs it, sure. <laughs> Just take Be the on go- your merry way now. Why is he Irish now? <laughs> I, know, I was trying to do the UPS. Oh, that's sorry. UP Irish. They're close. They both eat pasties. <laughs> um, so there's all this emphasis on this cult uh, that's supposed to grab our attention. Like, why is this guy okay with his cult being taken away? Um, why did Jesus send them down in the first place to get a cult? Why is he on the Mount of Olives, for one thing? That's an important part of the narrative. And this is part of understanding Scripture as a whole instead of just focusing on one part and being able to start and reflect on what's happened in the past that we're going to dive into. Usually this passage is kind of like the skip over this, okay, check, he got a donkey. Now it's beginning to look like the flannel graph I saw in Sunday school. <laughs> Next, I know he's going to go in and half-heartedly, wimpily flip over some tables and say something about church being a good place to pray. Because we all want to get to the, the cross, and the, or not even the cross, we want to get to the resurrection usually at this time of the year. Yeah. Yep. But also there's the whole, we just, those details don't really mean anything to us at face yeah. value. But anytime that the Bible is throwing things in your face two, three times, trying to approach it from different angles and make it a point, then it needs to become a point. Otherwise, we miss the bigger point. Yeah. And so this, he's making reference here to um, Zechariah 9. Says, um, and Zechariah was an Old Testament prophet who said some crazy stuff. Yeah. He did. Yeah, it's an up-and-down type of book like most of the prophets. There's judgment and then there's blessings. and. Um, it appears as if God is bipolar at parts because he's going to bless them, then he's going to destroy them, then he's going to destroy these people, then he's going to restore these people. And in Zechariah 9, he's talking about judgment of the people who are oppressing Israel. Mm-hmm. It's talking about how this person is going to do what? what? What's this Messiah figure going to do? He's going to ride in, ride in on a cult. A what? A cult. A cult? There's yeah. correlation? There is a correlation, yeah. So in Zechariah 9, he's preparing to judge the enemies of Israel. And he rides in Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives on a cold Where? Where from? The Mount of Olives. Where did Jesus start? Mount of Olives. Oh, okay. More Mount of Olives. More of this too? The the Mount of Olives really comes into play more in Zechariah 14. But this idea that God himself will come and judge Israel the Gentiles, or the pagans, the Romans, whoever is occupying Jerusalem at the time. The not chosen people. Yeah. The outsiders. The people that didn't say the prayer. Well, oh, the, the prayer. 
Yeah. Um, so then in Zechariah 14, because Zechariah 9 um, is setting up, and Zechariah 14 is the final chapter of Zechariah. It's where everything's coming to a climax, and it gets a little, like, next worldy. You know, there's a lot of, like, ultimate judgment type things, things that we would see in the book of Daniel or Revelation. Mm, yeah. Um, apocalyptic type language a little bit. And very end of the world stuff. And then it talks about um, the Lord coming from the Mount of Olives and riding down into Jerusalem to the temple uh, in order to cleanse the temple, the clean, people. Well, more specifically, to drive out the Gentiles or the nations from Israel. Um, and so there's a narrative set. And that narrative, um, in verse 3, for example, of chapter 14, um, it says that the Lord is going to fight as on the day of battle. In verse 5, it says God himself is coming. So these are all like, this is serious. You know, Jesus takes the colt and starts riding in. He's setting a stage here using the book of Zechariah. And then on top of all this, this is happening before Passover is about to begin. Yeah. And Passover is them remembering them being brought out of slavery in Egypt and hoping that the Messiah is going to come and enact Zechariah 14 to the people who are oppressing them in the, in the current time. Yeah. So Jesus really knows his audience at this moment. Yeah. He knows how to push their buttons, to say yeah. the least. And they're very ripe. Jerusalem itself is ripe with desire for vengeance. Um, just 40 years in the future, they're going to be completely destroyed. They're going to start gathering troops within the next uh, 15 years. They'll be building their armies. Because they're getting ready to try yeah. and overthrow the Roman government. Yeah. Because they believe that God is coming to th overthrow whoever's oppressing them. And they're going back to these ancient texts yeah. and saying, this is what God has promised us, the coming of the day of the yeah. Lord. When God comes, he's going to redeem us, bring us out, and yeah. kill all the evil people, all those who are not like us. And in Zechariah 14, when God comes, the enemies of God, um, like the Gentiles and people that aren't Jewish, their eyeballs are going to rot in their sockets. Their skin and their tongues are going to rot and fall off the bones. Very gruesome, walking dead type reference here. Yeah, because I mean the exact thing from Zechariah 14, 12, it says, And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. And Rome is waging war against Jerusalem at this time. They're oppressing them. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets. And their tongues will rot in their mouths. Like you said, walking dead yep. kind of stuff. And this is why we need to support Jerusalem. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> no, we won't go there this episode. <laughs> um, so that's actually not the point at all, because as we'll see, Jesus flips this whole narrative. Um, and he does that a lot throughout Scripture. Yeah. When he's, in his teachings, he's, they, they believe one thing, and he says, well, no, look at it this way. Yeah. Look at it a different angle. Look at something else that I'm doing. He fulfills the text from a different approach than what anybody expects. And the final verse of Zechariah 14 uh, in 21, and if you go to the second half of the verse, and it says, And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. Foreshadow? So, yeah, foreshadowing. 
So this whole setup, the whole stage that Jesus has as he's riding into town, and remember, he told the disciples specifically to tell this guy that was the owner of the colt, tell him the Lord has need of it. Now, if it's the Passover and you're anticipating God coming and judging and wrecking face through Israel as he cleanses the land for the Israelites to become kings over all the earth, um, as this narrative is playing out, that guy who has somebody come and say the Lord has need of his colt, that guy's going to go and tell his friends, and they're going to tell their friends, and you've got a city that's packed to capacity because it's holiday season. So you're saying the rumor mill started. Yeah. This guy went out and said, hey, do you remember that yeah. prophecy about yeah. the cult and Zechariah? Yeah. Somebody came to take yeah. my cult for this rabbi. Yeah, because Jesus is popular, but he's not necessarily that popular because these are people from all over the known world at the time. Because for Passover, every Jewish male had to return back pilgrimage to Jerusalem. So... What we're talking about isn't just like the citizens of Jerusalem that have heard about or seen Jesus. We're talking about people from all over that are like, wait, the Lord is here? So you have people that have traveled from far away that hear this rumor that the Lord is riding in on the colt, and everyone is thinking Zechariah. And Because it, it fits in with what they hope their timeline is going to be. Yeah. I mean, yeah. they're like, this is the time. This is the time yeah. of year. This is the reflection of Passover. If he's going to come, he's going to come now. And if he's going to come, then he's going to judge the Romans. And their eyes are going to melt, their tongues are going to melt, and their flesh is going to melt. And we're going to watch it. And we're going to rule over everybody. Yep. And it, it's they, they have this anticipation of victory. Mm -hmm. This anticipation that they are going to have an earthly kingdom, that they are going to be able to rule over other people. Yep. And Jesus is playing into it. He's not only playing into it, he's using the entire stage. And he's playing the role that they want him to play, but he's doing it in a subversive way. Well, he will. Right now he's following the script. Yeah, right, right, right now. True. Olives, yeah. And he's got the cult. And he's already spread the rumor mill deliberately. All these things are very deliberate and intentional setup. you saying that Jesus was sneaky in his time? He's brilliant. Brilliant. <laughs> um, this was before Twitter. <laughs> brilliant uh so as he's and what's so crazy is he knows he's setting this up and he's beginning to see the people line the streets entering jerusalem and he hears the commotion he can see it the mount of olives is an elevated place so he sees what's playing out and then we go into verse 41 of luke chapter 19 and when he drew near and saw the city he wept over it saying would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. There's a lot in there. And the one thing that I that jumped out right away as you're reading that is that he says, had you known on this day the things that make for peace, they're not anticipating peace. No. They're anticipating an uprise of violence. Like you said, people's eyes falling out of their head, their tongues, the whole nine yards. And he's, he's sorrowful. He's weeping over them because they're still out for blood. 
And he sees the writing on the wall. I don't think it's so much like he sees the future in this instance, like, but he knows what's coming. He, he can knows, see that mob mentality yeah, riling up. He knows how this ends. It's a familiar story. And he, he sees it happening. He sees them rising up. He sees them um, wanting to destroy their enemies through vengeance. And he knows what kind of bloodshed that that, that brings. So he weeps. And by 70 AD, Jerusalem will be destroyed, and there won't be one stone left upon another. And uh, Josephus describes it as completely, utterly laid waste, without a stone left standing on another. And that's roughly, what, 40 years after, 30, 40 years after Christ that this happens? Uh, yeah, 37 years if we're in AD 33 <laughs> yeah. right now. So yeah, by 70 AD, it's completely destroyed. And everybody in it is either taken captive and and the put interesting into the slave trade. Or, the, the interesting part to that, though, is it's not that Roman the Romans came down and destroyed Jerusalem. The Israelites or the, the nation of Israel rose up against their oppressors. Mm-hmm. So he can, I think, Jesus understands this fact that, like he said, if you knew if you knew the day, if you knew what it was to make peace, but they don't, they have this desire to always be out of this oppression, which is understandable mm-hmm. in slavery, probably sucks mm-hmm. I mean so he sees that the end of this is not good right because of who's ruling who's in charge and who's running things and yep. and he sees how they're reacting to the narrative he's pitching yeah that's another big thing it's like it would be hard to pull that act together knowing that you're setting them up you're setting yourself up you know like he's a Jew he he's watched the oppression taking place and yet he knows a higher path he knows the way and yet this passage exists in Zechariah and it's a narrative that Jesus wants to fulfill and in order to do so he needs to just shock everybody like nobody's going to see it coming what he's about to do yeah cuz they like you said they're all expecting the big overview is passover oppression they're yeah. unslavery yeah. They are. They, he's on the Mount of Olives, coming on a donkey, and they're going to start celebrating him coming to free them from Rome. And he's like, "No, yeah, this is not. This is not what I'm here for." And I know we've said it a few times now, but we can't overstate enough the the stage that is currently set. Yeah, and how ripe they are for vengeance. Uh, the desire to th- overthrow Rome exists and is there. Um, the the fact that Jesus is fulfilling these prophecies and the way that he's fulfilling them, it's setting the people up for one thing, and he's about to bait and switch them. Jesus juke. <laughs> Everybody. Um, it is a good point, too, to mention that there are two other occasions in Israel's history that the temple was cleansed. Um, it's pretty um, important to mention these because it shows the difference in the way that Jesus cleanses versus uh, the way that it had been cleansed in the past. So the first time is in Second Chronicles uh, chapter 2. Hezekiah became king, and he commissioned a cleansing of the temple. And he made the priests clean house and proceed to sacrifice 70 bulls, 100 rams, 200 lambs uh, gathered by the people, as well as 600 bulls and 3,000 sheep from the priestly supply. That seems like a bloodbath. 
yeah. more than a cleansing. But this is going back Especially into the history. The first temple, which was probably even smaller. smaller. <laughs> and this is going back, though, into a, to a time where Israel is going through the ups and downs of good kings, bad kings, yeah. following the temple laws and, Christ, or, yeah. and God. And Hezekiah is coming and saying, okay, we're going to cleanse everything out of this temple, get rid of all yeah. the idols, get rid of everything that's added in, yeah. and let's get back to worshiping God. Yeah, and they have this lavish celebration. And it's brought about because he's wealthy. He's the king. Yeah. So this cleanse, that cleanse is brought about by kingly wealth. Yeah. So the temple can be cleansed through wealth. Um, and then it gets cleansed by violence. Uh, this time, um, this passage isn't in the Bible, but it is in the Apocrypha, the book of Maccabees. What is the Apocrypha? The Apocrypha is the portion of scriptures, or I won't even use the word scriptures, the portion of writings between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And they're not even really between them. They just are in the Catholic Bible. It's like, it's, inter, it's like intertestamental history, kind of. Yeah, they're a bunch of writings that came uh, during and after the Babylonian exile. And the Maccabees were a group of people, mm-hmm. a family that... A family that rebelled against the Greeks. And freed the temple. Yep, they freed Jerusalem, minted coins, made it a Jewish state again. So how did they, and the Maccabees were, um, they did it through violence. They went through and destroyed the Greeks. Well, there's this epic story of the Greeks would keep people in line by showing up in their towns and making them do something that, well, they would find their weak point. And so for the Israelites, the weak point is if they thought God wasn't on their side, then they wouldn't fight. And so the Greeks would show up and they'd make the Israelites of each town sacrifice a pig on the local altar. and There's something in the Old Testament about that, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, it makes the altar unclean, and God um, is disgusted by it. Yeah. So by going and making the leading men of each town sacrifice a pig on the altar um, under threat of death, then it kept the Jews in a state where they believed that their God wasn't with them. Because they believed that sacrificing a pig on the altar made God not like them anymore. Yeah, or they, they made them unclean. Flee from them. Yeah, yeah, that God would not support them because of their um, abomination. Yeah, their abomination of His altar. And so the Greeks would do this to maintain control, and it worked for a long time. And then there's this family of the Maccabees, and a guy that is supposed to make the sacrifice refuses, and so they're like, "Oh, you're an idiot. Here, we'll grab this other leading man." The other leading man steps up to do it, and he stabs his kinsman, the other dude with a javelin, won't let him complete the sacrifice, and then they uh, kill off and chase off the Greek battalion that had come in to force this, and that spurred on the revolt. An uprising, That's why it's called the Maccabean Revolt, because this Maccabean family stood up and said, you're not going to sacrifice a pig on the altar. Um, All the nationalists cheered. And then um, it ends very sad with everybody dying. <laughs> but the, and but in the same instance, they were able to clean the temple, cleanse yeah. the temple, get it reestablished yeah. for worship. Yeah, they did retake uh, the majority of. Well, they retook uh, Jerusalem for one thing, and they retook many places uh, of key importance. And so they saw that as a successful revolt or overthrowing of the darkness and. The empires and in Jewish history, that's where they get Hanukkah as well. I mean, not that exact story, but it's through the Maccabees' writings that they have 
and celebrate Hanukkah. It is through that story because when they go to cleanse the temple, there's no fire. Been destroyed. There's uh, there's not enough oil to keep the um, candles and the lamps lit, and God provides oil. And so that miracle of like I think it was three days oil lasting the whole well, we, period of the Hanukkah. Yeah. Um, man, I'm really eight days. Eight, eight days. There you go. So. So when that happened, that became the Festival of Lights, which Jesus celebrates in the Gospel of John. And then also, or the Feast of Dedication, yep. it's called as well. And then also, now it's known as Hanukkah. So the two cleansings, because we went on a rabbit trail there for a moment, yeah, which is did. fine. Um, the rabbit, so it was Hezekiah cleansed it when he um, was bringing people back to God. Yeah. And saying, we've got to cleanse the temple, get rid of it. And then he did all these big sacrifices. Yeah. And that was only brought about because of his wealth. He threw money at the problem. Yeah. And then the problem happened again. Yeah. And they threw swords and violence at the problem. And then the problem happened again. So mm-hmm. we find that um, it's been tried two ways. Yeah. And Jesus comes down on this donkey. He weeps over the city because he understands that they are completely missing what he's about to do. And that what he's about to do in this temple is going to go not only over their heads, but it's not what they want. They're still seeking violence. And he said earlier, he said, um, if you only knew what it made to make peace, he's seeking peace. Even though he's going to go into the temple and say some very harsh things mm-hmm. and actually do some very harsh acts. Yeah. He wants peace. Mm-hmm. And he's not about to throw money or violence at this problem. No. That, that's the hard part, too, is because a lot of people deal with the problems of this world through money and violence. Yeah. Um, when we think of, like, our immediate solutions to atrocities around the world, like, oh, somebody should provide money for the food to feed those poor people. Or, oh, somebody should go kill that dictator that's killing all of his people. You quoting Pat Robinson again? <laughs> Good old Pat Robinson. Um, but the two major ways that we see as potential world-changing actions, violence and money, Jesus dismisses as being illegitimate. And he has a different way that we'll read about. And it's not even people in general. It's also the church that falls into these things, yeah. these methods of trying to enact change. Mm-hmm. Throwing money at something or being violently overthrown, saying, that, hey, we can justify the violence because of the outcome or you know what it's easier for me to give money than to do something else Mm -hmm. because we come from a very affluent background in America I mean not everybody's rolling in money but we can people can throw money at issues five ten dollars there and feel like they are contributing and dealing with it oh trying to get rid of world hunger we can throw some money at that Mm -hmm. and and again that only lasts a while Mm -hmm. it might be a temporary fix like the two cleanses of the temple was a temporary thing but it still happens. Yep. So Jesus enters the temple. In verse 45 of Luke chapter 19. We're still in Luke. And it says this. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold. Saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer. But you have made it a den of robbers. So let's set up the temple here. Because this isn't the same as the tabernacle in, the, in um, Moses' time that was traveling. And it wasn't the same temple that Solomon built. It wasn't that, because that was destroyed. This is the temple that who built? Herod. And he built it for what reason? Uh, 
um, to get the people on his side. Yeah, it was a political move. If yeah. I can appease these Jewish people and get them on my side, if I build the temple and do that, it's going to bring peace. He wasn't really Jewish, and the Romans said, you're a good fighter, we'll make you king of the Jews. Yeah. And the people didn't really care for him until he was like, but I'll build you a temple. I'm just going to put a little garrison here <laughs> to keep you under control. Yeah, and he married a Jewish woman, so then they're like, oh, his household is Jewish. Jewish. So, so this temple is has been built, and the way that, that it's structured is you have the court of the Gentiles on the outside, and they can only get so close to God because God is in the Holy of Holies yeah. in this temple. So you have the court of the Gentiles, and you have the court of the women, mm-hmm. and then you had the court of the men, yeah. and then the court of the priests. Yeah. And you get closer and closer. Yeah. And we always see these pictures of, in art of when Jesus is cleansing the temple, He's, it makes it look like he's in like the middle of where all the court of the men or the the, the, the temple steps and, dri- and driving people out. Where during this time, he's on the outskirts. Yeah. So where they bought and sold, where they were, um, where you'd purchase your sacrifice before going into the Jewish only section of the temple was the court of Gentiles. And so they'd fill it up with all sorts of vending booths and everything. Think Disney World for ancient Israelite people. So you were saying that it's a, it a festive situation for one. So people are in a good mood. They're yeah. buying their um, sacrifices, but you probably have other vendors there who are making money off people who are visiting from out of town. Yeah, probably selling wine and everything else. Sounds like a party. Yeah. Now, the reason that you would go there to buy your sacrifice and pay way too much for it is the same reason that you buy food. An amusement park. You weren't allowed to bring your stuff in. Well, <laughs> oh, you, the travel. Right, the yeah. travel um, was the main thing, you know, because you're traveling from a great distance. And in the ancient world, um, I heard it put this way by somebody on a, either a podcast or something. But by the time you travel from Galilee with a sheep um, to Jerusalem to sacrifice it, like, it could have gotten nicked by a wolf, like, and half its ear bitten off, and then it's no longer good for sacrifice. Because there were requirements to what it looked like. Leg, yeah. And you couldn't sacrifice it. You had to sacrifice a lamb without blemish. And that was key. And so you took a risk bringing something from your homeland all the way there. So you bought the one that was marked up because you had to buy the one that was marked up. Yep. Very oppressive system. I like your um, idea of the amusement parks because I remember going to amusement parks with my son and buying like cotton candy for like 10 bucks. Yep. This is like, ugh. You have a system in which, in order to remain a Jewish male that is part of the people and counted as part of the people of Israel, you have to be there for the Passover. And you have to make the sacrifice. Yeah, you have to. And so even if you are the poorest of the poor, you have to sacrifice doves. Which it's really interesting in, um, I want to say, Matthew's account of the cleansing of the temple. It says that Jesus went to the tables of those that bought and sold the doves. And he flipped that table. And from what we know about Jesus, he probably grew up poor, being from Nazareth. And so every year he watches his parents scrape together what money they can for a couple of doves because that's the sacrifice they can make. Yeah. And I know it's reading between the lines a little bit, but I think it's so interesting that they call out specifically that table, that that's the table he went to. The, the table that's oppressing the poorest of the poor. Yeah. The and ones who can't afford it but have to do it. Yeah. 
And a lot of scholars believe that Joseph most likely died when Jesus was young because mm-hmm. we don't hear about him at all in the Gospels past the birth narrative. And so here you have potentially a single mother, widow, Mary, scraping together whatever she can afford, taking Jesus to the temple and spending everything they have on a couple doves. And Jesus gets a little personal here. He's angry. He's angry. Yeah. And he's angry about the right things. Like, he's angry at the oppression. And that's been the interesting thing where I've heard people use the cleanse of the temple to justify violence and to justify things, um, to justify physical violence. And I see Jesus here is not inflicting physical violence necessarily on people. He's inflicting violence, not even violence. He's he's expressing his discontent with a system that is oppressing those who can't afford to be oppressed. Mm-hmm. While everybody outside is waiting for him to free them from this great oppression of Rome, he is fighting the oppression that's happening inside of their own social circle, mm-hmm. inside their own um, culture and community. Yeah. And part of this whole setup that's so brilliant is Jesus on any given Passover couldn't have just walked in and gotten away with what he does here. No. But he has just put on this huge display, literally a parade, and all eyes are on him. He can do whatever he wants, and they're going to try to figure out what it is he's doing. Um, And so he can go in and he can flip these tables and he can do this uh, because... Nobody dares touch him. He, they, there was just a parade for the guy. Yeah, and by parade, because it, is, it says all his disciples, everybody came together, was throwing the palm yeah. trees down, the palm leaves, and, the, and singing hallelujah, yeah. hosanna. He is here, yeah. and he shows up. Well, he's he's going to show up here, and they can't say, well, stop, Jesus. Yeah. Now, the, what's amazing about this is, so Zechariah ends with, um, there no longer being any traitors in the house of the Lord. So let's go. So you're going back to the Old Testament, going back to Zechariah. After, as Zechariah had written about all the enemies of Israel being stricken by a plague, okay. the Lord coming to cleanse them. The okay. final verse in that chapter, in that whole book, yeah, is there no longer being any traitors in the house of the Lord. But there are. There are right now, and so Jesus needs to get them out because, because he's he, fulfilling the whole yes. thing. Yeah, he's fulfilling the whole thing. But then, so postscript now, so he fulfills the whole thing by driving them out, and then he makes a statement. And that statement is extremely significant because it echoes Isaiah 56, verse 7. Uh, why don't you go ahead and read that? Isaiah 56, 7. You've done a lot of reading today. Um, These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable in my altar. For my house shall be called the house of prayer for all peoples. For all peoples? All peoples. It's not a very Jewish thing to say. It is not. It's the counter-narrative of the Messiah. They're looking forward to killing everybody and wiping everybody out except for them. And now Jesus says, wait a second here. This house, this temple is for all people. Yeah. Mind-blowing. It's open to everybody. The courts of the Gentiles and the women and all this. Let's get rid of all that. This is open for everybody. Yeah. Fast forward to resurrection. Well, crucifixion. When he dies, what's torn? The veil. The veil separating God from the rest of the temple. And what's behind it? Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Surprise! <empty>. April Fool's! <laughs> yeah. It's empty. Yeah. Um, that's significant. Those sorts of details... Are the Gospels trying to shift the entire narrative 
of the Bible to this point. Um, they took a lot of creativity or creative liberties in order to reroute the scriptures in line of Jesus. Yeah. Or in the light of Jesus. Um, so this Isaiah passage is really significant and even though the Luke passage we read, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. So you get the idea, but Mark actually goes on to quote the rest of it and say, um, you've made it a den of robbers, but it's supposed to be a house of prayer for all peoples. Like the Mark passage quotes the whole thing. Yeah. And so He's making make, an emphasis. Yeah. Make no mistake. This is the point. This is like the driving home feature of... This grand stage that Jesus has set, this is like the curtain call moment, is he makes this statement. Because these the, the Palm Sunday thing that we, we we're gonna do on Sunday, recognizing Jesus coming down from a Mount of Olives and the cleanse of the temple are one long narrative together. Mm-hmm. They're not separated. We we tend to separate the two. Mm-hmm. But they're they're they flow together in such a way that he is um, trying to tell them a whole message in his action, or like an act. He's acting, it's like performance yeah. art. That he's doing here for these people. And when we separate them, we do them to service. So together, we're finding out that he's looking for peace. He's not coming to divide and conquer and wipe out everybody else who is not like him. Mm -hmm. And now he's coming and saying, okay, get you all out of those of you who are are opposing people from coming to God. Who are buying and selling and trading and all that. Stop that throw you out of the temple, mm-hmm. and now I'm here to declare that everybody's welcome. Yeah. That you don't need to buy those sacrifices out there to come in. Mm-hmm. You, you're welcome. That's part of it, but I think part of him driving them out is concluding the narrative of Zechariah. Oh, yeah. As if to cue the reader in, like, hey, the walking dead portion of this passage is not going to happen. Yeah. It's like closing that scene, and then he opens a new scene almost like a postscript or an encore, he walks back out onto the stage and then says this passage from Isaiah in which all the peoples all over the world are invited into God's place in order to worship. And that's a counter-narrative to the whole Passover narrative that they've been, that they're there to celebrate. Mm-hmm. They're, ce- they're there to celebrate the release of Oppression that they feel like they're the ones that are oppressed. Mm-hmm. And Jesus' narrative is, well, yes, you were released from oppression, but everybody's welcome in mm-hmm. to this idea of what we've called it, the kingdom of God, and yep. Jesus does as well. But <laughs> yep. The other asset of this, or portion of this, is that the Lord has come into Jerusalem to judge the Gentiles. He judges them, and his judgment is love. Yeah. His judgment is they are welcome. And who does he judge? He judges those who are oppressing people in the temple yeah. courts. And th- that happens to be the Jewish people at this time. Yeah. I've referred to it as he goes, rides into town and kicks out all the wrong people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, you're getting it wrong. <laughs> yeah. Right? And that will be the interesting like dialogue between him and his disciples. Do you think some of his disciples have been like, hey, come on, Jesus, you're getting this wrong. You're supposed to be doing this. Yeah. yeah. I wonder if this was the end of it for Judas. Yeah. Like, I wonder if this moment. The whole like, oh, you're not who I was hoping you would be. Exactly. What's hard about this too is, I'm sure you've heard pastors say this, maybe you've even said it. Um, Maybe we've all said it at one point. (laughs) But we often talk about Palm Sunday and we're like, 
you know, today everybody's praising Jesus. And then just a few days later, we're all going to call for his head on a pike. How does that happen? Well, this moment is how it happens. Yeah. Like this exact moment. This is the thing that he does that nobody wants him to do because everybody wants their vengeance. If Jesus had cleansed the temple through money or power, they would have accepted. Yeah. They would have crowned him king and we'd have a different narrative, but he doesn't. And that's what happens when we separate the two into two separate stories. Exactly. Because I think on Palm Sunday, we shouldn't be speaking about people who are praising, oh yes, the Messiah is finally here and then we want to crucify him later. As they're saying, the Messiah who, this is the Messiah who's going to bring vengeance, who's going to bring death, who's going to bring wrath. This is him. Yay, we're finally going to be free. And he's not who they—he's not who they think he is. Right, bait and switch. Yeah, so they're not celebrating the Messiah as we view Jesus. They're celebrating this idea of a warrior coming in to wipe out their oppression. Yep. And like you said, bait and switch. <clears throat> yeah. That would frustrate me if I was in their shoes. Yeah. I wonder if I would have stuck with Jesus past that moment. I can get riled up, and I'm an underdog guy. Yeah. And so I see the movies where, you know like Count of Monte Cristo or these different movies based on vengeance or justice winning the day. And I get, I buy into that. Like I have a hard time with that, you know? So I think, I think most of us would. words with Jesus after this. Yeah. Come on, Jesus. This isn't what we're supposed to be doing. What's your next, what are you going to do next then? Or you're not a Bible believer, Jesus. Yeah. You don't believe the scriptures. You, You didn't follow the script. Don't you understand in Zechariah what he said? Yeah. Why aren't eyeballs melting, Jesus? <laughs> so, what's our big takeaway then? What what's our take home? Oh, gosh. Yeah. In five minutes. So we can keep this well, under 50 minutes. Well, part of this is the, the whole idea of looking at who do we expect Jesus to be for one. Yeah. Our expectations of Jesus. Um, he's opened another one, ladies and gentlemen. Trying to keep up. <laughs> What are our expectations of Jesus? We, we, and I think in our Western Christian Baptist, whatever culture we come from, we have these expectations of we expect Jesus to do X, Y, and Z, thinking about like the left behind. Mm-hmm. Jesus is going to come back on, with a sword and he's going to wipe out all the evil and all this. And maybe we're going to fall into the same steps as these people, expecting Jesus to come one way, but he's going to totally different. He's going to do it Jesus' way or in the way of peace. And if only we knew the ways of peace. If Jesus were to come back to the American church, would we call for his head on a pike? I'm going to say yes. Because he's breaking down the walls that we use to divide people. Mm -hmm. Because he says, my house is a house of prayer for all people. Mm -hmm. We still put people in boxes. We still have those who are in and those who are out. And we think... Even even inside the church, oh, you're Calvinist, you're Arminian, you're this, you're that, you're I can't do I can't do worship with you because you don't believe the same way I do. It's not very inclusive. The church doesn't doesn't have a history of inclusivity, right. even in, in, inside of itself. Yeah, and the whole point of Israel having a purpose on the planet, mm-hmm. they they took their purpose back from the promise made to Abraham. Which was to be a blessing to all nations. Yep. And Not to kill all nations. No. So, throughout the Bible where they deviate from being a blessing to nations, 
they're deviating from their purpose, their God-given purpose. Yeah. And Jesus is recalling that and applying it to the temple, saying, this is the place where Israelites should be the most, or where Jews should be the most Jewish, or where Israel is the purest. And here we have all this division, and we aren't being a blessing to all nations. Instead, we limit them. We limit their access to God. Which, yeah, we told them they had to sit in the outer courts, the way outer courts. Yeah. So that's hard because I feel like that kind of applies to the church. Yeah. How many believers throughout time and space have claimed that somebody's out and they're in? Yeah. That's almost sometimes the basis of theology, unfortunately. Yeah. So as you're talking about salvation, the idea of who's saved, who's not, who's in the family of God, who's not in the family of God. And if they don't meet the same criteria as we think they need to fit, then sorry. And that gets murky now. Yeah. Gets into stuff that might make people feel uncomfortable listening to this. Yeah, I'm not even sure I can comment on all that. Because at the very least here, Jesus is inviting all peoples to have access to God. Mm-hmm. That's at the very least. The amount of that inclusion is kind of, I think, where the church debates. Because I don't think most Christians would argue that people don't have an invitation to come to Jesus. Calvinists might, but that's an extreme. (laughs) But, so most people believe that, yeah, you can have access to God. Just do X, Y, and Z. Or say this prayer, be baptized. And And come to this church. Yeah. Any church, yeah. Go to a church. And there's this, almost like these goals that they have to meet to to be included. Yeah. Because you could take it a whole step further and say everybody's included. But I don't think that's what Jesus is quite saying here. I think he's saying that this place is a a house of prayer for anybody who comes to God. And this movement is for all people. Yes, because inside the Jewish culture this time, the movement of Yahweh was exclusive to the Jewish people. Mm -hmm. And we have have Paul and and, uh, Peter that have... Was it Peter? Paul and, Pe- Paul, Paul and Peter? Paul and John. Paul and Peter had that discussion about Jews inside of the movement of the way. Yeah. Well, the Council of Jerusalem was all about Gentile inclusion. Yeah. Who's in? Who's out? Yeah. And that's only not even a generation after Jesus. Yeah. After they argued about it for a while, they pretty much decided, well, as long as the Gentiles still care about the poor. Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> maybe, that should be, maybe that should be the litmus test for the church. If you care about the poor, you're good. Certainly part of it, but I don't know about the whole thing. That's what that's the amount of frustration they came to in that discussion though is yeah. they pretty much ended up okay, yeah, we're okay with that as long as they remember the poor. So that's an Acts Council of Jerusalem. But we're jumping way, way ahead. Way ahead and way out of bounds. And we're at forty six minutes. In. So what are you drinking? Oh drinking. Um three. No, maybe not. I'm not gonna tell me I, I had. New Holland <laughs> New Holland Brewing Passion Blaster. It is a rose ale with passion fruit, raspberry, and apple flavors. And it is one of those dangerous ones that is really tasty and you don't feel it as you drink it. Yeah. Yeah, I can agree to that. I had that a couple weeks ago. Um, I'm drinking Muskegon's own Pigeon Hill Brewing Company um, OCP, Oatmeal Cream Pie. It is... Extremely tasty. Like a dessert. Yeah, it is a dessert. I think I'd consider it... Well, yeah, it's an 
ale with spices. It's an oat ale, um, but it has like a kind of stout, like a breakfast stout type taste to it. All right. If you're familiar with uh, Founders Oatmeal. Yeah. Well, to wrap up tonight, um, we got Beers and Bible coming up this Wednesday. Um, I'm finishing up a series on forgiveness at the Congregational Church in Belding on Wednesdays. And then Dan next month is starting a series on... Romans. The Book of Romans in four weeks. Some churches have been in Romans for like 12 years, and he's going to do it in four weeks. I'll never leave the Book of Romans. Yeah, which is, might be part of the topic. But join us for our Bears and Bible if you're in the area, 815, over the horse's mouth in Belding, and where Dan will give us an introduction to... His series on Romans. Yeah. Uh, what? Why don't we tell them the date? I don't have a calendar in front of me. It would be March 28th. Because I'm just thinking for people that might listen to this a week L- late. A week late and show up. Show up. <laughs> Sometimes you do I show up there on there Wednesdays. Bibles here. There's only bingo. <laughs> no, there's <laughs> bingo and beers. Um, yeah, that's March 28th at about 8.15 we head over there. Um, so you guys have a good day and we'll catch you guys in the next one. Yeah.